You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Get ready. It'll be here any minute. Is that a rifle? You don't know what a rifle looks like? It's just swords were your thing and guns were mine. But I guess we we're both doing guns now. I just didn't know that. Well, that's intense. I see it within you. Fear. Jealousy. It is our duty to cleanse the universe of this weakness. You know, they told me you people were conceited douchebags, but that isn't true at all. Dude. Ah, I'm using my wrong eye. Groot, put your seatbelt on! everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest Trent. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to start off with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Our family just watched it a couple of days ago. We absolutely loved it. So Kyle is going to join me today to help me decipher a little bit about all of the Easter eggs. This thing is so full of Easter eggs, so full of stingers. It is just unbelievable how much they were able to cram into this movie. One of the best ones they put out so far. Then we are going to take a look at the Alien Covenant prologue short that they put out on the internet a couple of days ago. It's kind of like a, obviously it's called a prologue. It gives us a little background of where we're at and what we've been up to and how we got to this point now. Very, very telling. It 
excites me even more for this movie. It is just so cool looking and the theories that we can derive from it and we are going to go through them. I have lots of ideas and trying to track down exactly the life cycle of the alien and where exactly are we in this film in terms of, you know, where will it fit in and are there more spaces that we have to discover before reaching the alien time cycle and the life cycle, obviously, of the xenomorph from Alien. And then also on our collectible segment, we are going to look at a Star Wars Darth Vader speakerphone from 1983. One of these long gone collectibles that I had that I've been in the process of kind of putting back together (laughs) piece by piece, literally. We're going to talk a little bit about it because you know what crazy Star Wars collector I am. And let's jump into the show right now. Once again, like in my previous week, I'm going to apologize for my voice because I am still not 100% there yet. I'm still recovering from the post-celebration cold that is now entering its third week, I think, and hopefully finishing off. So let's get started with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That's spawn of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, for today's movie, we are going to talk about Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. We recently saw it, 3D, the way I think it should be seen. This type of movie requires that sort of thing. So let's go a little bit over the plot briefly, because as far as I'm concerned, it's it's not really that important, but there are certain things that obviously makes it different than the previous film. You're no longer introducing the characters, you know, the backstories and that sort of thing. We, we are getting a little more character development from many of the characters Um, but this particular movie what we have is peter quill finally gets to meet his father who is played by kurt russell we are introduced to a couple of new characters yandu gets punished captured and punished by whatever guild it is that he works for what's it you know what it's called the ravagers okay and the apparently the leader is played by uh sylvester stallone which is he a character as far as you know that there is a leader to this group from what it sounds like, there's five factions, and Yand- they're all Ravagers, but Yandu has his own faction of the Ravagers. Okay. But they kind of all, as far as the movie goes, they, they all seem to be under the umbrella in some shape or form. Yeah, of, of, they of, are of, of a Ravagers. bigger one. Okay. Yeah. It's like like from Pirates of the Caribbean, the pirate code. Okay. It's kind of like that. Right. Oh, like in John Wick, the uh, yeah. the Assassin, the Assassin uh, Guild, uh, it's all company. Ravagers, yeah. And what, what they have going this time around and the way the movie starts is with them, and by that I mean the, the Guardians, they're on a mission to protect some alien group from another alien group, and they succeed in their mission, they're, they get their prize, and the prize that they want is Nebula. Is well, there- well, no, they're not defending from another alien group, they're defending from an interdimensional space monster that likes to eat the batteries of that planet. So it's, the, it's, it's bad Which, guy... Actually, enough. I want to talk about it. Right, right, bit. well, it's, yeah. it's bad guy X. It's, it's, it's a bad guy, it doesn't really matter. What specifically, you know, do you know about this, uh, this, this particular conflict? Well, that beast is called an abelisk. 
supposedly, and it's not from necessarily another planet. It's from another dimension. Okay. So that's actually kind of like a kind of a reference to Doctor Strange in a way because that would be in his plane of like work is in other dimensions and that beast is supposedly supposed to like eat the batteries and that's what the guardians are there to stop right but in this particular case they do defeat the beast which it's very funny it's it's this movie yeah i think succeeds like the original in terms of the humor so much all over the place it is probably the i would say the funniest of all the marvel films oh yes most definitely and they defeat the beast. They get out of there with their prize, Nebula. They're going to bring her back to justice. And unfortunately, Rocket Raccoon steals some of these batteries. So all of a sudden, they realize that the guys that just paid to defend them, to help them, stole from them. So And nobody knew about it. Only Rocket was the one who had decided to do it. Yeah. So all of a sudden, they're being chased by this entire army of this particular group. So they're trying to get away, and in the process of getting away, they get help from a mysterious ship that appears, and they're they're able to kind of, I guess, go beyond galaxies, to jump beyond beyond galaxies to kind of get away. And when they land in this spot to kind of catch their breath, because their ship is falling apart, because it's being bombarded by so many of these things, they meet who this rescuer is, and why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Well, the rescuer is... Ego, the living planet, who reveals to be Star-Lord's father. In the comics, basically what this movie is, that they combined Star-Lord's actual father in the comics, who's basically this like king of a like secret race of people on a planet. And he's also a celestial, who also, I think, I believe, turns kin to a bad guy as well. But they also combine him with Ego, the living planet, which is also generally a bad guy. But who's... Quill's father in the comic. Which of those two? In the comic, it's the king. Oh, okay. But Ego the Living Planet is a separate character. But it's not his father. No. Okay. But in the movie, he is. And funny story, they actually, to get the rights to Ego, they had to work uh, with, I believe it was, yeah, it was Fox, because Fox owned the rights to Ego the Living Planet due to its affiliation with the Fantastic Four. Oh. So they had to, they were... That that was part of their trade off when they were trying to get some of the uh, like the dare like Daredevil and uh, yeah. Ghost Rider and Punisher and those characters. Oh, oh, that's interesting. That was that was part of the deal. But yeah, and then he's also with Mantis, who is also in the comics and is a part of the Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics. Who's a good guy? Who's always been a good guy? But she's kind of like his his servant. Right. We get the feeling from the beginning that she's there to serve him, and she is. A little afraid of him. I got the feeling right away that she that everything is great, but I'm a little concerned. That's the that's what I got out of her. So at that point, they kind of split up into different areas, right? Quill, Drax, and Gamora, they go off with Ego. And then Rocket, Groot, and Nebula stay behind to repair all of the damage to the ship. While they're there, we go to a different planet at this point where we catch up with Yondu. He seems to be in some sort of gambling planet or something where he all of a sudden recognizes somebody from far away and approaches them, the group, especially the leader of this group who is played by Sylvester Stallone out of all people in the world. And he's kind of like we mentioned earlier. He's this league of thieves or whatever the heck it is that we can call well, them. Yeah, his, his character and... 
others there's like towards the end there's there's we meet the other ones too but each of these leaders of different ravager groups are actually part of the original guardians of the galaxy team from the comics which were a group of like aliens that banded together in the year 3000 and it was like it was really like far out there and yandu yandu was part of that group but sylvester stallone plays starhawk and then also included our matinex which is that crystal guy that you see that's with him. Right. And later we meet a few more. Yeah. And then Charlie 27 is, I think, I believe that's Ving Rhames' character. And yeah. At the, again, yeah. at the end, we meet a whole bunch and then, of them. Um, Alita O'Gorg, she's the girl that you see. Yeah. And then there's also Mainframe. I don't think we see Mainframe. And then there's Kruger. I don't think we see him either. And then uh, Yandu. Actually, no, Kruger, we see he's that red guy with the yeah. that uh, that does those like weird projections. But yeah, and then Yandu's part of that group too. Right, but obviously things are very different in this movie. Basically, Yandu tries to catch up with him and they have an argument because Yandu has been kind of pushed out of this group based on what had happened with how he participated in getting Star-Lord away from Earth under Ego's orders. Yeah, and he was also delivering the other kids that he had as right well. that we find out about later so yandu, this is something that gets delivered story-wise as the movie progresses yeah, and yandu, so so and yandu, yandu has this cloud over his head basically that is the you did something that it's even against our rules and that's why we don't like you anymore and we don't want to talk to you yeah and yandu stops delivering to ego because he re- starts to realize what was going on with the other kids right right so Yandu figures out where the heck it is that these guys are hiding. And all of a sudden, they sent a uh, search party, let's say, or an attack party. And they go after Rocket Raccoon and those guys. Obviously, they don't know at the time that the other rest of the team has gone away. So uh, they are capable of overcoming them. And they kind of take them all prisoner and off to space they go. And while out there, you know, we, we go back to Peter. And he gets, you know, he's getting to know his father. And... They're showing him like what a beautiful world that he lives in and how everything is kind of created by him and that he's almost a god in terms of the fact that the planet is is connected to him and how he, you know, loved his mom and he he left her and he feels horrible about it and he still feels bad. And Peter is kind of little by little, he's becoming very sympathetic to his father, even though he's not happy with what he did. At the same time, we kind of start to see this. The continuation, I guess, of the romance between Peter and Gamora, how they're kind of tippy-toeing around each other. And it's funny because even the lines, they talk about Cheers, which is something you probably don't know anything about. Yeah, I have no clue. It's a show that... I I know it's a show. Part of the success of the show was keeping the male and the female romantic leads from becoming very romantic because the theory was once you make them together once you put them together the show will suffer and that, that happens a lot so that that's what he kept hinting at is that and I, maybe that's what's happening with the movies is that they never want you to really have those two completely together because they think that might screw up the story a drax on the other hand is developing a weird relationship with mantis you know because she has these weird powers and he is way too honest about everything and it creates so many funny moments so that's going on over there while Yandu is in space, he realizes there's a, even before space, the bubblings of some kind of, you kind of get the feeling that there's a mutiny in the works. And then when they're in space, it really goes all out. 
half the group goes with Yandu, half the group goes with the this other guy, Taserface, which which a whole yeah, bunch of funny he's lines. He's actually in the comics too. There's wow. a he looks completely different. Uh, in the comics, he actually does have Taser powers, like electric powers and ah. stuff, and he has like a suit and everything, like a golden suit. But yeah, in this, they just made him look really ugly. <laughs> and he ends up basically killing off of all of Yandu's supporters, except for one that kind of stays hidden. After a lot of uh, planning and Groot getting involved and baby Groot this is, which again has a, so many funny, funny lines in this, they're able to escape the ship, kill the bad pirates, let's say, and Rocket Raccoon and Yandu kind of form a connection too about how they are kind of like the outcasts of everybody. So that was an, another interesting little relationship going on there. So they're escaping the ship, half the ship blows up, they're on their way now to reunite with Peter. As we get everybody finally in the same area, we also know that the group that they were working for in the beginning of the movie is still chasing them down, so they're still trying to get to them too. So you got a lot of different forces here kind of coming together at the same time. When they finally get to the planet and they're all together, you get to see a little more of the relationship between Gamora and Nebula about how this sister relationship is very frayed and little by little nebula is warming up to the possibility of those two not trying to kill each other every five minutes like they apparently seem to do more and more and we get to a point in the movie where we find out that yes ego really has a bad guy kind of plan that involves taking over every world that he visits by putting these plants that then kind of grow into other things and take over the those worlds. We also find out about how, as Kyle was mentioned earlier, Peter wasn't the first child that he tried to bring in to his world in order to help him become more powerful and, and fulfill this plan of his. We find out that there were probably hundreds, maybe thousands of other worlds that he has visited where he has fathered other children from different species all over the universe that didn't work out and they're all kind of like dead in the basement in a cave somewhere so then that's when we kind of get the the backstory a little more of the backstory with Yandu and his involvement he was the guy that was helping him do that and with Peter he kind of kept him hidden yeah because he because it was after he realized what was what was happening yeah the thing that finally pushes Peter over the edge in terms of waking up from this kind of trance that he's in regarding his father, is the fact that Ego admits to him that he deliberately put the tumor into his mom's head as a way of having her die so he can get away from her. Because he kind of explains to him that if she were to stay alive, he wouldn't have been able to leave her. So it is something he did in order to be able to go back to what his plan was, you know, his world building which really kind of blows Peter away and kind of gets him, okay, that's it. This guy's completely out of his gourd. And that's when we get into, you know, the Peter is back mode part of the movie. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerds! Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm, I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me! Help me! 
Shut up! Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. So at that point is when the movie goes into, you know, kick-ass mode where, all right, we have to defeat him. And it all breaks down into different sections where these two have to do this and, and Groot has to do that and everybody's doing their own thing, you know, in order to be able to figure out how to defeat him. And at the same time, you know, those golden people from the beginning show up too. So it's a typical, you know, comic bookish battle royale at the end where everybody's just fighting and then we get the kind of, a uh, good ending where the good guys win, obviously bad guys lose, but there are some losses even in the good guy side. And again, you know, we're in spoiler world here. Yandu bites the dust on this one to help Peter escape. He kind of sacrifices his own life to get Peter up, you know, away from the planet that's exploding into space by giving him his spacesuit, his automatic spacesuit. So now Again, we're dealing with comic books here, so I don't know if this is the end of Yandu. Maybe it is. We saw him being incinerated. <laughs> yeah, it's the end. <laughs> He's incinerated. I, you know, I, you never know on these things. And at the end, you know, you do get this uh, kind of like memorial service that's happening where all the rest of these guild people, you know, the Stallone group that come to kind of honor his his uh, his death and I, I I don't understand did they then realize what he was doing that he wasn't a bad guy in well, their group I don't know if they realized that but they realized that he helped to save the, the galaxy the, the galaxy okay so yeah. they might not know but they're they're paying their respects whatever that means now one of the most interesting things about this film that is completely full of Easter eggs not only do we get I think it was five stingers at the end. Yeah. But we also got lots of little Easter eggs during the film. We once again get to see Howard the Duck. Yeah. I think he was at the gambling planet. Yeah. He was talking to somebody. So I guess he got away from the collector at that, you know, at the end of the of the yeah. previous film. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the other Easter eggs and stingers that we had on the film? Uh, well, we have the Stanley, Which is very important because yeah. tell us how it ties into every other Marvel film. So supposedly what the deal is with that is in the clips that we see he's sitting down with the watchers who are this like ancient alien race that basically just watch over events in the cosmic universe and they just they don't interfere they just watch and they use those characters kind of as narrators sometimes in those cosmic stories mm -hmm. especially the very outlandish ones so from what like I think this is also kind of official too basically that all of Stan Lee's cameos are actually, it's the same guy. It's, it is Stan Lee and Stan Lee is basically like a, a representative to the watchers. And he basically explains everything that he sees to them. He's witnessing. Yeah. He's what's happening for them. Yeah. Some other things. Um, the character that plays the ravager that helps Yondu and rocket escape him. That's actually James Gunn's brother, Sean oh. Gunn. And he was in the first movie too, but he didn't have much of a role. What did he play in that movie? He played the same the same guy. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Because he background. looked familiar yeah. to me. And I think he still did this for this movie too. He also does he doubles for Rocky Raccoon for like the CGI. He does Oh, that's the, right. He does the body he, movements. Yeah, he for, does it. Okay. Yeah. Um in this movie he had like a bigger role. And yeah. I, I just wanted oh, yeah. to point that out because I'm like, wow, James Gunn's really trying to put his brother on the map there because he's also in that new The Belko Experiment, which I think James Gunn produced, I think, or something. Oh, he's kind of so, like Sam Raimi who puts his brother on everything. Yeah. 
And he's a he's a good actor. I mean, I I enjoy him. Yeah, his role was pretty good. Yeah, I ho- I hope to see more of him. Oh, the um, uh, Eternity, when his dad touches Peter Quill's forehead and shows him like like everything, his yeah. all of his plans and stuff. He's he you hear him say he's like Eternity, Eternity is basically like Marvel's like kind of it's like it's God thing. It's just like it's entity that controls everything in the universe like overall it's this giant cosmic being that just okay everything so people are saying it's not 100 percent confirmed but that's people are referring to it as that that's probably what he's referring to because he's seeing everything and eternity is everything uh ego and star lord are both celestials which we see in the uh, the first guardians of the galaxy when they're in the collector's room and he shows those projections of the, the celestials which are like these godlike creatures that like they created the infinity stone but ego doesn't seem to be attached to that at all oh the chronons when rocket and yandu are jumping through uh through space oh yeah where well, their faces are getting all one messed of, up one of the planets that they go over is actually these rock creatures which you see in thor the dark world remember when yeah. thor beats up that rock creature yeah, and yeah. it just explodes into a million pieces yeah that's their home world and you see two of them like oh maybe that's what around. i was thinking and uh, and originally those creatures were debuted in the planet hulk comic in the arena which maybe we'll see another one of these again in the arena and thor ragnarok well what's funny is that speaking of thor ragnarok we saw the trailer again on the, in the movie theater yeah. and we know that jeff goldblum is a character in that yes. movie but he, he showed up in the in the credits also in the comics the game master is actually jeff goldblum's character is actually the brother of the collector oh which, well they do and they do have similar markings. yeah they have okay. similar markings and they and i th- i think it, i'm not sure if it's been confirmed but they, they kind of they have to bring the collector back because he still has one of the Infinity Stones. He has the, the one from Thor the Dark World, which is that the red... I forget what it's called, but it's the red stone. He has it still. So, uh, David Hasselhoff's in it. Oh, yeah. that I, <laughs> yeah. That's something I wasn't expecting, but it was just so funny. The movie is so full of 80s pop culture references yeah. that Peter makes left and right, and, and it's just endless. And this one, they just take it way over the top, where he actually shows up as yeah, a ego. As a ego, ego turns into David Hasselhoff for a couple minutes, and then. But uh, another thing was that James Gunn said, but this was before the movie came out. But he said he wanted to have David Bowie in it oh, as a wow. cameo, but he passed away before they could do anything about <laughs> it. But yeah, I, w- I would have really thought that would have been really nice to see him in there. Uh, young Kurt Russell, they they did the digital. Yeah, that was yeah, freaky that was, how yeah. they did that. Yeah, it was it was weird. We did a show about that recently, about the CGI face yeah. making people younger. That was amazing. Yeah, they, I, I would have been really cool to see him with like with the beard, because then you could be like, oh, it's McCready or it's Well, uh, that's Snake. one of the things I was, I was hoping. They, I don't think they can do the beard, really, with that technology. Uh, well, hair is always difficult, but what I, what I was hoping they would do is in some special effect when he's changing faces like when he is changing to yeah. Hasselhoff maybe they would throw in him with an eye patch or him with the big beard yeah. as little nods to 80s but I guess that gets a little too confusing yeah. I guess story wise um, what else Nathan Fillion was supposed to have a cameo in the movie and they filmed it he's basically like some pilot for some random like junk ship I think Oh, but it never made it into the movie Ooh. But there's a picture floating around of him just like he has, I guess, mullet and he's just sitting there. <laughs> he, yeah, it's really weird. It looks like something out of Spaceballs. My last one is uh, Adam Warlock. At one of the uh, the last end tag scenes, 
Aisha refers to the fact that she's making a, like a cocoon with a new like warrior and he's yeah. named Adam, Adam Warlock. And then another thing that's been confirmed is the kind of, I think it's the roster of the Guardians of the Galaxy during Infinity War. Peter Quill, Gamora, Drax, Rocket, and then also Nebula are going to be in it. And, and Groot. No Mantis? I don't remember about Mantis. I, I, I Part of me wants to say so, but I, I don't remember for sure. But yeah, those characters are definitely guaranteed to appear in Infinity War. Well, the other stingers that are not as impactful, I guess you could call it, is, and you mentioned Peter Gunn's uh, brother. The first stinger is the one with him learning to use Yandu's uh, arrow. Yeah. And in the process, he's making a complete mess because he can't get that little arrow thing to, to fly right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, he makes it go fast and it hits Drax and yeah. it's like it's stuck in his chest and he's like screaming. <laughs> Funny. The other one that you didn't mention I think was the one with Peter walking into Groot's room and now Groot is no longer baby Groot. He's like teenager Groot. He's like hey, Groot. Yeah. He's like whiny teenager. He's like yeah whiny teenager and he's playing like video games and his room is a complete mess and yeah. he's like you know you gotta clean this mess up and Obviously, the only answer you get out of Groot is, I am Groot. And he's like, no, I don't care how much you have to do this. You're going to do this now. I am Groot. Don't give me that. And it was, it was, and he, what's also funny is that his voice is cracking because he, I guess he's hitting puberty. So you yeah. get baby Groot voice. And those, it's like, I am Groot, you know, a combination of the yeah. two voices. So that was kind of neat. And the the other one was the one that Kyle mentioned way earlier in yeah, the show. Yeah, it sounds like. Stallone is putting together this group. Yeah, maybe they'll do a spinoff just on oh, them. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that would go over with like very well, but I mean, it'd be cool that maybe they'll show up in the next movie because so, they are working on the third one. Oh, definitely. And it said at the end. And they, they said did. Adam Warlock will be in the third one, so. And and at the end of the movie, you get the, the title that says yeah. to be continued or will well, be back I, or Guardians something like that. Guardians of the Galaxy will return. Yeah. So, so well, they're definitely going to be an Infinity War. So. Yeah. So they're, they're, you're going to see more of this. This is definitely... I, personally, I liked it better than the first. Yeah, me too. I think the, the writing is a lot better. Yeah. Um, like I said before, I was mentioning, when you have a movie where people go into five different directions, sometimes when... The character development is not very credible. Here, I found all those little relationship growths very credible. You know, uh, Peter with his father, Gamora with her sister, Drax, Mantis, their little relationship. Even the Yondu-Rocket relationship, how those are developed too. I found them very believable. And I was interested in them. I also think it was even funnier than the first film. Music-wise, to me, was pretty much the same. Uh, there were certain songs I really, really liked, certain I really didn't care much. But that's kind of how I felt about it in the first film. How about you? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I just, I, I like the music from the first one better than the second one. Because I, like, with that album, like, every song was, like, a hit for me. On this one, it was, like, only, like, like Fox on the Run and then, like, maybe two other ones. So, as far as I'm concerned, this is a definitely uh, good hit. I know it's making a bundle of money we are going to see these characters again in future combination films and maybe even standalones i'm I assuming everybody gets three three at least three films so next movie is uh spider-man homecoming right That's the next but marvel movie the next time these guys are going to show up well yeah it's going to be infinity war yeah. or, or do they get another solo film before that no they get a it? they get a solo film afterwards afterwards okay yeah some point afterwards yeah i, I hope we see them in ragnarok in some cameo at least because i feel like maybe they'll bring thor back to earth or something the only problem is, uh, similar to Avengers Civil War, for example, when you put so many characters, and apparently I, I kept reading about how many 
ridiculous number of characters yeah, they're going to si- have. There's at least 67 How characters. do you give these people they're, they're any... Not, they're not all heroes, but still. I... Right, but how do you give them any real airtime, FaceTime, without them being I, just cameos? I hope they make the movie like three hours, because I'll, I'll sit through it. I don't care. Like, I mean, that's, that's worth three hours worth in the movie theater, honestly. That, that's going to be a big project. So, as far as we're concerned... Go see it. See it in 3D. There's a lot of cool 3D effects in this film. A lot. Yeah, of, especially with Yandu's uh, arrow. Those, his arrow, his pirates being thrown up in the air th- yeah. towards you when they're in Ego's planet, the little bubbles coming up and them touching the bubbles. Yeah, and also and you get splitting. to see the, the, the uh, Star Wars trailer in 3D too. So that's ah, That was the other <laughs> bonus we got. We got yeah. The Last Jedi in 3D for the first time, so that was cool. Yeah. So we loved it, and that's our story, and we're sticking to it. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a special news bulletin direct via satellite from our on-the-spot task force. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Thank you, Bob. It's Mort. Mort, yes. I am Ted Baxter, and here is the news. All right, well, something that we definitely have to talk about is the new Alien Covenant prologue called The Crossing that they put online. It's another one of these, I don't want to call it a viral because the viral ones are supposed to look like, kind of like a commercial. This is an actual little dramatic prologue, which I'm not sure whether or not this is going to be in the movie or it was shot exclusively for this. I have a feeling it's in the movie because the clips look like something that's explaining to us what is happening in that place. It's about two and a half minutes long and... You have David narrating how he and Shaw are out there in space for a while. She is in the process of repairing him because he's, if you remember the movie, he's been decapitated pretty much. So we do get a lot of shots of her kind of putting him together. And David is being a little bit impatient about it. But at the same time, he's trying to be nice to Shaw, which, again, I don't know if that's his nature or he's just kind of doing it on purpose because she is repairing him so she he's kind of making her feel good i'm not sure as they continue and he gets repaired we also see that they're studying the ship's trajectory and that they're figuring out exactly where it is that these engineers are coming from and that's where their destination seems to be they don't specify how long it's going to take for them to get there so what we do see is Shaw being put into what appears to be a hypersleep chamber that the engineers were using in the previous film. And David basically telling her, you know, I'll wake you when we get there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know how long it's taking to get to where they're going. I thought the movie took place uh, maybe, was it 10 years later or something like that? Yeah. So maybe it took 10 years. I do not know what happens to Shaw. It could be a big twist as to what becomes of her once they arrive. But as David is alone, he starts to tell us about, because he doesn't have to go to hypersleep. He won't, you know, hypersleep is really only for humans, really. He doesn't really need it. I guess he could do it if he wanted, but it would be just a waste. Robots don't suffer, I guess, from the psychological damage of being awake for so long. They can just kind of live through it. And David appears to, based on what he's saying, that he's studying the culture of the engineers. I guess he goes through all the data banks of the ship trying to figure out what these guys are all about. Then we see the ship approaching an atmosphere 
area, you know, kind of going into a very cloudy, stormy kind of environment. And then approaching more of a clear sky kind of scenario, I guess, where it is hovering and getting closer and closer to what appears to be a city. And waiting for this ship appears also to be another engineer, manufacturer type of docking station, if you will, right at the edge of the city. It's a very kind of like a C-shape device, I guess, huge, much, much bigger than the actual ship they're flying. And you see them kind of docking together. And you do get a view from their ship down as what appears to be thousands and thousands of beings flocking to the center of this, let's call it like a coliseum or a plaza or an open area where the ship is right above them. And David is opening the hatch, looking down, and all around them you could see the ampules from the first film. Obviously, this is a different ship. The first ship was destroyed more or less, I guess. But the ship that they did find, the working one, I guess, was also full, maybe. Or maybe they transported them. I doubt it. It is, seems to be full of these ampules, which are what appears to be some kind of a chemical, biological weapon. And it looks to me like he's in the process of possibly delivering these. And I don't mean delivering them, like giving it to them. It looks like he's about to unload the the, this poison on this population and he looks very menacing you know looking down and he's quoting something again very um prophetic let's say in a way or something but that's basically what they're giving us in this particular prologue i love it it's excellent what do you think kyle i thought it was a really cool thing to see just because it gives us some information on what happened but yeah, I agree with you. I think he's going to dump all those canisters on them. Right. And I've seen, you know, online, not necessarily spoilers. I've seen pictures from Empire Magazine, which is, I believe, a British magazine, that they published a lot of other photos from the movie. And you do get to see a lot of other stuff in these photos. You do get to see some concept drawings, I believe, of the ampules not just sitting there, but actually starting to almost hover down or come down on this population. You also see a shot of this population down there, and they kind of look like the engineers. They look a little different. They're not as pale white. They're a little more flesh tone-ish type of looking. They're also all dressed in what appears to be like robes and that type of thing, which is something that we had seen in the deleted scenes of Prometheus. In the uh, deleted scenes, uh, there's a whole ceremony that takes place in the beginning of the film having to do with the sacrificial engineer that is going to be drinking that weird thing that he kind of falls apart and falls in the water and that sort of thing. In the deleted material, we do see a whole bunch of other engineers there, or whatever you want to call them, dressed in similar robes. So it is kind of interesting that this is where they're going. The Empire Magazine also had some pictures of what looks like to be David with very long hair, not so much older looking, but more raggedy looking. We do get a picture of this new alien creature that is going to be a combination of something we haven't seen yet. It's a more flesh tone colored version of the alien. But we also see another picture of what looks like to be more of the traditional alien, but the head skull, kind of like the current one, or the current one we were used to in the first film, is a very solid, you don't see any eyes at all, just the mouth and the solid headpiece. Well, this one looks like it's a little more translucid, and it almost looks like you can see 
what would be a traditional kind of human skull underneath. So we're dealing with some kind of weird combinations that they appear to be messing with. So let's go over a little bit in terms of theory and what we've seen so far and what we know. In Prometheus, now again, we can't start with Alien because Alien takes place way in the future and things already have been messed around with. In Alien, you have eggs. We haven't seen eggs in Prometheus. So in Alien, everything starts with an egg. The egg infects an astronaut. That astronaut gives birth, more or less, to the actual alien creature that we all know. The same formula seems to apply for aliens. Aliens, if you remember, the colony is exposed to that original ship, the same ship from Alien. The eggs are somehow, somebody's infected with the egg, brought back, rampage, everything goes nuts, but it all starts with that egg. And that particular creature has a certain life cycle that it is only explored in those two films. Now, granted, if you go forward into three and four and five, you know, all the other alien films, which I'm not even going to bother because I absolutely despise three and really not too crazy about the rest. I'm going to concentrate on the Ridley Scott version and even the James Cameron version because I have a feeling they're going to try to stay true at least to that mythology of how things work. But with James Cameron, we're dealing with the same type of problem, an infestation having to do with an egg that infects a host. They kind of up the ante a little bit because what they do is something that by having multiple aliens... You now have a hive, and by having a hive, you now have, like in the insect world, one of these possible eggs, not the eggs that are infecting people, but one of these reproduced aliens will turn into a queen. And now you have a queen, a hive, and the means for them to be able to reproduce in a massive scale. So that's where you get to when it comes to aliens. So... Like I said, Alien and Aliens, they're very similar in a way, except for the queen factor. If we go back to Prometheus now, let's think about what is the exposure that people have in order for these creatures to be born. All right, there's two events that take place in Prometheus. The first event is them all walking into this chamber inside one of these ships. The chamber seems to be activated by just opening the door. You open the door... And it triggers some kind of a trigger that starts to open some of those canisters and to leak. So I'm not sure if that is a booby trap, if you will. Something that the engineers had made in advance in case somebody took their ship and tried to get their cargo. And that's a way of killing intruders. Or who knows? Maybe there's a different function of how that works. Let's keep in mind that as far as the engineers are concerned, based on Prometheus, the only thing we know about them as far as why they're dead is that possibly they were experimenting with something and possibly something went wrong, which resulted in the entire crew of that particular ship dying. A couple of them are still in stasis, you know, in the hyper sleep chambers. One particular one, apparently the door slammed on the body, causing his head to be removed, and the head fell inside that room. That is why when they opened the you know the room, they noticed there's a head there, and they try to recover the head to bring it back to study it. The results of that head, when they tried to kind of revive it, if you remember, it looks as if 
by shocking it back to life again, by giving it, I guess, an electrical impulse, it continues whatever cycle that head was under when it was removed. And the cycle that it appears to be under, it is not a chest buster type of cycle, like an egg hatching type of cycle. It's more like the actual pathogen that poisons them and destroys them. We kind of get a confirmation of this when we see what happens to some of the other human characters that are exposed. Now remember, the human characters that are exposed are exposed in similar manners, but separate. Uh, one of them is uh, Charlie, which is the Tom Hardy looking guy. He's directly exposed by David dipping his finger into his drink and he had a little a drop of that black goo, thereby making him infected. The other guy that gets infected is the other two scientists, the Fifil, I think was what, I forget the other guy's name, the guy who says Gaspacho. So let's call him Gaspacho. Fifil and Gaspacho. Well, Gaspacho gets killed by some kind of worm, which I'm still a little confused as to where that worm came from. Is that worm something that was already in that room in a kind of like hibernating mode in just a tiny little worm? And once the worm got introduced to the goo, it morphed into this bigger snake type of thing. Or was the worm something that they were carrying in their boot that they accidentally brought into the room that then gets infected? So I'm still a little confused about the little the, the worm thing that turns into yeah, a snake. I, f- I feel like it was kind of like, maybe like it's like basically like the equivalent of a rat on their ship. Possible, possible. And because that section was sealed, everything is not dead, but kind of like in a hibernate mode. The black goo doesn't do anything. The, the worm doesn't run around because obviously the worm runs around, the worm's going to die. No, they kind of go to sleep until somebody opens that door and I guess reintroduces oxygen into the room and, and they kind of revive it. Okay, fine. So going back to the infestation, okay, Gaspacho guy gets the worm in his face, the worm basically kills him, and then Fifel falls into the goo and disappears. He shows up at the ship later, all turned completely nuts he looks like some kind of monster his face is completely different he almost seems like he's turning into something else we might go into the area of de- instead of evolving devolving into some kind of creature some kind of genetic mutation of what maybe humans used to be at some point or something but all you know is that the common reaction they seem to be having to exposure to this goo is they go nuts and they want to kill everybody around them. It's a perfect bioweapon, you know, in terms of military usage and that sort of thing. In the military, it's great to have the type of weapon where you drop it into your enemy and you don't have to fight the enemy. The enemy starts fighting itself and destroying itself. And that's what appears to maybe have happened with the engineers as they're all piled up dead in front of that room. And by how Fifel is acting, he goes into the ship and starts trying to kill everybody until they finally put him down. Let's take a quick break now and listen to a little spot from our friends at IC Robots. If you're into anything having to do with retro, vintage toys and 80s shows and all kinds of 80s and 70s vintage retro kind of games, television, movies, all of that geek culture that we love here at GeekFest Rants. Take a look when you visit their site. They have a podcast called The Toys R Us Report and we strongly recommend it. So have a listen. Tune in to The Toys R Us Report for your weekly dose of pop culture talk that's out of this world. 
movies, TV, toys, comics and more every Wednesday on the IC Robots radio network at icrobots.com. What are you waiting for? It's time to get down or come up. All right, we're back. Thank you guys from IC Robots. And let's continue with our show. Going back to Charlie now is a different situation because Charlie is killed before he can fully transform and start attacking everyone. But the point that's important about Charlie is that Charlie, before he even knew he was infected, he had sex with Shaw. So now you got another genetic introduction into this life cycle. Not only are we dealing with an infestation of one person, now you're dealing with the infestation of one person, that person passing genetic material to Shaw. Now Shaw has an alien inside her that is partly human and partly whatever the heck it is that Charlie's carrying around. That particular creature that looks something completely different we've never seen before in the future films, it's like a skin color octopus type of thing, at first is very small. Later on, after the film is kind of winding down, we see it come out of the escape pod ship, I guess it is, it's called, the survival ship, and it starts to fight with an engineer. It behaves like an egg. In other words, it infects a host through the mouth like an egg, you know, like a face hugger does. It seems to die as soon as the infestation takes place. The host results in dying because the chest buster, in this particular case, it's coming out of I don't know, I don't remember exactly where it's coming out of, but it is coming out of in that fashion. And what comes out is something that we saw in Prometheus, which is a alienish looking creature, not exactly what we get in Alien or Aliens. They labeled it a deacon because they're purposely doing something here that is very smart. And this is something that I wanted to talk about. For these movies to work, you gotta have three things. Actually, you gotta have four things. The first thing you gotta have is the mythology. And that's something I absolutely love. I love the mythology. In other words, what are the rules? Follow the rules that the writer is making and don't deviate from those rules. Don't contradict yourself. So to me, this is the whole religious aspect of this film, how they're messing with religion in terms of trying to show you the parallels between the human creation and how these creatures, these engineers have kind of tampered with humanity. So that's the mythology part. The second part, in the case of Covenant, I believe it has to do more with horror because they did say this is going to be more of a horror film. They don't want it to be as grand as sci-fi-ish. Obviously, it is a sci-fi film, but they are emphasizing the horror. They're marketing it as a horror film, and I think they want it to be a horror film. So that's the second thing they got to accomplish. You got to accomplish your mythology. You got to accomplish your horror aspect. The third thing they have to accomplish is entertainment. It's got to be entertaining. You got to have a writer that goes through these different beats and mixes things well so that the story is entertaining throughout, that it doesn't have a huge plot hole like sometimes stories do. So once you have all these three aspects, that's when you have a successful good movie. Now, the bonus part, I would call the fourth part of a movie, is when you can have a twist or a shocking ending or some kind of twist that you get to a situation where you never expected what is going to happen and something happens 
and it kind of makes sense. It's not a twist. Now, you got to be careful with a twist. You can throw a twist that people just get twisted into a pretzel, and it kind of ruins the movie sometimes because it contradicts things. But we, when you can throw a twist or a shocking ending right close to the end, and it's a good one, that's a bonus. And that's something that I think Cameron was able to achieve when he did his Terminator film, his original Terminator film, when you think the movie's over and now you're fighting the mechanical Terminator as opposed to the fleshy Terminator. And in Aliens, he did the same thing with the Alien Queen. You thought that she was destroyed and guess what? You got a whole chunk of the movie now where she's in the main spaceship and they got to fight her there now. So... Those are excellent little bonuses that, that, that you get. When you get it, great. If not, no big deal, as long as those other three elements exist. So that is what uh, Ridley Scott, I think, has to do with this film. I know he wants to make it more of a horror film. Now, here's where things get a little confusing, and the story kind of gets a monkey wrench thrown into it. As I mentioned before, Prometheus, there was nothing about eggs, and there was nothing about what the final alien looks like. Because you're, you're, you're kind of getting to that stage. However, think about this. When they walk into that chamber where all the ampules are, they then walk into a secondary chamber. In that secondary chamber, up on the wall, on the ceiling actually, there are murals. And the murals, as soon as they open the door, the murals start to react, again, to the oxygen, I guess, and they start to deteriorate immediately. The paintings that are up there, and there's also what looks like to be a carving on a farther wall are very interesting and very probably prophetic in terms of what's going to be happening in these films. One of those murals has what appears to be an engineer-looking guy reaching over to some weird creature that doesn't look exactly like an alien, but it looks like some other weird creature. And the theme, it's almost like a Michelangelo theme. You see, you know, reaching out to some, like God reaching out to man or something like that. You know, it's, it's, it, it parallels religious aspects. Then apparently there's also another picture out there where you can actually see an egg being held by these very skinny hands. It's like, okay, so that tells me that the engineers are aware of the egg cycle, that there is an egg cycle. It just happens not to be in Prometheus. But the whole theory of hatching eggs as a delivery system for these creatures, not the pathogen. The pathogen is completely different. Now you're dealing with these creatures. That's another way. That's something that's going to come back to us. The third one is the mural that is, like I said before, it's more like a carving. And it looks like what you have. Now again, online you can kind of look these up and you'll see still images. Because in the movie it's very hard to see them. They're, they're, they're very fast. They show them to you very fast on purpose. But if you look at that carving, it looks to me like the alien queen. The head of the alien queen almost in a Christ-like position, in the center, kind of spread out, and all around it, again, when you look carefully into the pictures that you can find on the internet, the high-resolution pictures, you do see the alien cycle all around it. It's almost like an instruction manual. You do see a face hugger attached to an alien's face. You do see a lot of that. So it's almost, like I said, it's prophetic. It explains to you something that's going to happen later, but they don't necessarily touch upon it. So I have a feeling when we get to this film now, David is going to start to do his own experiments. He's going to mess around with stuff. He is responsible for probably the destruction of this engineer race, let's say, to the point where this planet now is a wasteland of 
at first dead engineer bodies that basically all, all probably killed themselves and killed each other. Or maybe the engineers, once they realized that they were losing the planet because of the infestation, maybe they decided to kind of nuke everything, burn everybody, because it looks like there's an area full of what appears to be charred bodies, unless that's the pathogen destroying the body that it's, you know, the host. But we know for a fact that this movie, from the trailers, we do see actual aliens running around. I couldn't tell you exactly what they look like because they're you know, very fast. One of them looks a lot like a traditional alien, the one that seems to be on the uh, on top of the ship cockpit yeah. trying to break in. We also see an egg being hatched that seems to go to the captain's face or the, the secondary captain after Joe, uh, Franco goes and catches a cold or something. So the question then becomes, what has happened in that planet between the period of time where David most likely killed everybody and now he's all alone and he's probably bored and he's a little crazy you know based on what we learned about him so is it possible that he's now experimenting with combining different dna strands to see what he gets and now the planet starts to get populated by aliens based on his experiments and like i said before there appears to be a couple of different types of aliens which leads me to believe that he's conducting different types of experiments some of them leading to the traditional aliens, some of them leading to these new, I think they call them neoforms or something like that. I don't know. They have a whole bunch of new names for them. So that is going to be the key question that I'm after in this movie. How are they bringing the eggs in? How crazy did David go? And we're only, I think, about two weeks away. So I think in a way they've given us way too much stuff between all the trailers and yeah, all these behind definitely. the scenes. Without having to go spoiler crazy, you know, digging for actual spoilers, I think we can put a lot of this together, you know, without too much help. But obviously they want to promote the film. And, you know, I'll be there and I'm pretty sure Kyle is too. You can collect them all. You Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For today's collectible segment, it's not exactly a toy, but it is a collectible. What I have here in front of me is the Darth Vader speakerphone from, I believe, 1983. This is a speakerphone that I had purchased a very long time ago. I don't remember exactly how I got it in terms of where did, I, where did I hear about it and how did I purchase it and where did I buy it from because it doesn't seem to be like the type of thing that you would buy at a toy store it's it's more of a specialty item so i'm not sure exactly where i got it from but originally this device came and let me describe it for you a little bit it comes in a box instructions and everything and what you have is a base a gray base that i guess it's supposed to resemble possibly a death star or star destroyer type of environment if you will it's, it's a gray you know the gunship gray you know the very darkish death star gray type of color with the rails of the floor so it looks very death starish let's say the numbers are big blockish and square with black buttons with red numbers on them and the way it basically functions is you have a large size darth vader i would say about a foot tall maybe maybe a little smaller than a foot 
or close to a foot. And he's standing there, completely, obviously, unarticulated. This is a, a slab of uh, plastic. But it's a three-dimensional representation of Vader. He's standing there, cape flowing behind him, all plastic, and he's holding his belt. And what happens is, when you turn the phone on, and let me see if you can hear this. When you turn him on like that, and you're getting a landline, because this is a landline phone, which is something that I guess kids these days uh, might not be very familiar with because nowadays everybody's got cell phones or you get your phone service from your cable subscribe subscriber or anything like that. So it's really not coming out of a, a real um, phone jack on the wall. It's coming from your modem these days sometimes. But anyway, it is that type of phone, the one where you actually need an actual phone jack to plug into your wall. In this case, I have a similar situation where I live now. I don't have a landline that comes from the wall. My landline service comes from my modem. So I do have them hooked up that way. So when you actually press the button and get a, a tone, his chest plate lights up red. One of the little lights on his chest plate, uh, you know, comes up in the color red. So it kind of tells you you're on. Uh, now keep in mind, this is a speaker phone. So the microphone is built into the front of the phone. It's a cute little device, no frills or thrills. There's a last number redial button. There's also a mute button, in case you wanna mute whoever you're talking to for a minute. And what I remember about this collectible, this, this, this speakerphone, is that when Star Wars started to kinda go into its dark period, where there wasn't a lot of merchandise going on, and I was kinda starting to tone down my collectible uh, habits for Star Wars, I actually detached the Vader part of the phone, the actual plastic piece, and I kept the bottom piece. And I kept that bottom piece at my desk. Now, keep in mind, I was, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 years old, something like that. And I used that phone for a while. After a while, I kind of put it away because a speakerphone is a, it's not a very convenient thing to have unless you want it for a very specific reason. If you happen to be doing something that you can't, cannot be using your hands and you're getting instructions or something and you're holding a book, for example, and you're talking to that person while you're, I don't know, flipping pages or something like that, or maybe you're working on something with, with tools and you have to talk to somebody, that makes sense. But for most practical phone conversations, especially when you're living with your parents, 15-year-old, 16-year-old, you really don't want to be on a speakerphone. <laughs> Your conversations are private and you got to keep it that way. So I, like I said, I kept the speaker version and I kind of put away my, uh, my Vader version. So the, the dark times started to come on, <laughs> you know, through the late 80s. And as I mentioned many times, my interest in Star Wars started to fade a little bit. There just wasn't much material out there. Uh, the only thing uh, that they kept going with every now and then was some books, which I really wasn't interested. You know, the whole EU thing really did not grab me. So you fast forward to, I don't know how many years, we move out of the that particular apartment in Jackson Heights we were living in. By the late 80s, we move into our first home that my parents bought. And this is one of those periods where I have talked about in the past that I am still regretting to this day, where I... Again, as I was getting older, I was starting to put away a lot of my toys. And for some reason, 
I had this container, a gigantic plastic football container that fit most of my Star Wars ships, playsets, anything like that. Not the figures. The figures my grandfather had built for me a case to put on the wall so I could stand them all up. So at least I was able to keep my figures in a displayable manner, you know, all my actual, you know, original Kenners. But the actual playsets and many, many other toys that I had uh, from when I was younger, I had V action figure, V visitors, I had all kinds of other knickknacks that I would collect back when I used to go to conventions and that sort of thing, including the top part of that Vader phone. I'm pretty certain what I did was when I removed it, I threw it in that bin too. And that bin stayed at that apartment building in the basement in a storage area. And when we moved away in the, I don't know, 89, let's say, for example, that's uh, when we somehow did not bother to bring with us that bin and that is going to go to my grave as one of my biggest regrets that I basically threw out not threw out but left behind a big chunk of my Star Wars collection the figures made it so it wasn't a complete loss so what I've been doing over the last geez I don't know 10 years or so or maybe longer I've been slowly re- finding all these things that I used to have and sometimes getting things that I never had. But one of the things that always bothered me because the bottom piece kept coming with me no matter where I went, no matter how many homes we changed, how many how many times we moved uh, with my parents. And then when I got married and I moved out on my own with my wife, you know, these boxes of toys that were mine came with me. And that speakerphone bottom piece continued to come with me. And every now and then I would test it out to see if it would work. And it would still work. What I had actually done is, because when you disconnect the Vader part from the base part, you actually stop the connection. There's a connection that takes place inside Vader's foot that goes up through the inside up until his chest plate that actually makes the light go on, letting you know that you have a connection. Well, when you remove Vader, you stop that connection. So what I had done is I had gathered, I believe, some wires and completed that connection, removed, I believe, from Vader's chest, the light. And somehow it had drilled a tiny little hole into the base and reinstalled the light into the base and tucked the wires in there to complete the connection. And this way I could tell visually by seeing the little red light come on on the base that, I, you know, that the phone was functional. And it did continue to be functional. But again, didn't have too much use for it, so it lived in boxes, in bins for the majority of its lifetime. Once again, when I started getting serious again about you know the, the vintage aspect of collecting, and I started digging through my boxes and looking at all the different, oh, look at this, this is all, there's a button, this is an old button, oh great, let's, let's put it on our display case here, there's an old this, there's an old that. Uh, one of the things that kept popping up was this speakerphone, and the speakerphone, obviously, it's not too small. I can't just put it in a display case because it, it, it couldn't fit. The, the display case I have currently, uh, that I have my action figures, there are the um, uh, IKEA cases. There's these uh, one, two, three, four, five tiers, and basically I can put all my figures in one. I forget the actual name of them. I think, I don't know if they were Billy's or they all have these weird names. I can't remember. But this is a, a style they used to have, and I don't even know if they sell them anymore, that were perfect, absolutely perfect for action figures or for micro machines or for anything that is, I would say, shorter than four and a half inches. 
each little area is about four and a half inches that you, you know, that's the maximum you can get out of those. You know, you can rearrange them a little bit and make one bigger than the other, but then you'll take away from the other. So one of my cases has all my original figures. Then the other case has accessories, um, the land speeder. There's a couple of uh, Hoth doodads and little EU ships and a probot and some of the vans, rip, rip vans I have in there. I have an Imperial troop transport. I have a do-back. I have the Jabba playset uh, because he's huge and, you know, I needed to put him in a different area. I have a Tauntaun in there, an escape pod, buttons, cassettes, you know, all little weird knickknacks that are vintage -y. Well, this phone will not fit. Obviously, it's too big. So, like I mentioned before, there wasn't a I, I also never had a real need for it, you know, in, in the type of needs that I have. Now, these days, it's a little different because when I started doing some of these podcast interviews over the phone and recording over the phone, it could have come in handy, but I figured out other ways of doing it. However, because it is a vintage item, it's always been bothering me. I gotta be, I should be displaying this thing, but guess what? I don't have the Vader. So I started hunting for Vaders on eBay or on uh, Facebook, Star Wars collectible groups. I actually don't remember where I got it. I don't know if it was one or the other, but I was finally able to get one. And if you go on eBay, you can find these still, some of them in very good condition. Unfortunately, they're a little expensive sometimes and expensive for my finances. For some people, it might not be expensive. I'm talking about if you want them in full working order, you might be paying maybe 50 bucks for them. If you want them in a box with the box included, you know, with the original telephone cord included, you know, that you can plug to the wall, the instruction manual, that might cost you even more. Maybe you're looking at the $75 price range. But all I wanted was the Vader part. And every now and then I would find people selling the Vader. And sometimes people wanted $30, $40. You know, it's like, oh, you know, for that kind of money, I could get the whole thing if I spend a few more dollars. So I just kept holding out and holding out. And finally, I got a pretty good deal on just the body, the Vader body. So when I got that, I was able to connect it, but then I realized, oh crap, I had removed, as I mentioned earlier, that connecting wire with the red light to make the phone functional. So now I had to readapt it to make it do what it used to do in the past, and that is have these little connectors on the feet that would then trigger the light that would shoot up to the chest. Problem was that when I started to try to figure that out, the wires inside were so old and frail that one of them snapped. So I actually had to open the Vader body, which kind of snaps into, you know, out of place. And I attached new wires inside. I used the light that exists already inside the, the Vader I purchased. And I opened the base, removed the red light that I had put on, reconnected, opened the base, taking take those wires out, put the extensions all through the body. And the whole thing after some a lot of sweat, a lot of sweat and tinkering because I was starting to get worried that I'm like, I can't get this thing to work right. The feet, are, the foot is not fitting properly. The connection is getting lost, but finally it worked. And now I have it sitting on my desk and it is a truly vintage item. It's very, I don't want to say very of its time. Nowadays, if they were to manufacture this, it would be a lot different, I think. Now, don't get me wrong, the, the, the Vader itself, is, it's pretty good detailed Vader. It, it's better looking than the 12-inch Vader they put out in 77. It's got a lot more detail. The proportions are very well done. But nowadays, I think they would have much more lighting features associated with anywhere where you can put a light in it. It's pretty cool looking, and it kind of fits the desk you know that I use and how 
you know, I like to show my vintage collections and that sort of thing. So again, this is another one of these items. If you are into trying to find some of these older vintage items, they're out there. They're not insanely overpriced, depending on your financial situation. Or if you're just looking for a piece of something. That's another thing that you also have to keep in mind. When you have a collectible that you bought for a cheaper price because it's missing maybe a piece or two, you can always find those missing pieces, you know, from people that are getting rid of their junk. So always be in the lookout for that. All right, well, this brings us to the end of today's episode. I'd like to thank Kyle for joining me, helping me put together our Guardians and Alien segments. Like I mentioned earlier, we absolutely loved Guardians of the Galaxy. Groot, again, steals the show. Too many, way too many stingers to, uh, to keep track of. Can't wait to see more of it. We also cannot wait because we're almost there with Alien Covenant. It's right around the corner. Let's just hope we get a good movie out of this one. And please join us next time. Thank you guys for listening. We will have more reviews, more collectibles, and hopefully some surprises along the way. So thank you guys for listening, and we will see you here next time at GeekFest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. After we made contact with the engineers, the Prometheus was destroyed. All hands were lost, but I escaped with Elizabeth in one of their ships. I was badly injured on our mission. She put me back together. I'd never experienced such compassion. Certainly not from Mr. Wayland, or from any human. Green to green. Red to red. It's meant to be simple. I'm doing my best. You're very kind at heart, you know. We were able to activate their ship and set course for their homeworld. We were finally going to meet our creator. How long? Impossible to say. What if they're no better than us? So long as they are no worse. Sleep tight. I'll wake you when we arrive. And then I was alone again. I learned of their ways and awaited our arrival. Oh, my.
if you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017.